This is the podcast for RUF at App State. Everyone is welcome and no one is unexpected. For more information, visit us at appstate.ruf.org. Obviously, this is a good place to be, we believe, if you are a Christian. But if you're not a Christian, this is equally a place for you because we're here to explore the claims of Christianity together. And this whole semester, we're looking at the Ten Commandments, which fall in the book of Exodus, which is in the Old Testament, the first half of the Bible, which Christians believe is the authoritative message of God to us. And we're studying the Ten Commandments because they stand at the heart of the Christian life. And if we're going to explore... The claims of Christianity, we should explore what it looks like to live as a Christian. And here God is giving these ten central commandments to show his people, this is what it looks like to live in my love, to respond to my grace, to be my people. And I think we need to look at them very carefully, but also there's so much confusion about how God's law or his commandments, his commands, his rules, how they apply to us. If they apply to us, whether we should want them to apply to us. And so far last week, what I said is that the Bible presents these commandments to us as a good. God's law is good because he, the lawgiver, is good, and he gives them to us. And now we're going to jump into the Ten Commandments looking at the first one here, which you can read up on the screen. The first commandment, Exodus 20, verse 3. You shall have no other gods before me. I've got some big news. Breaking news. Some hot tea. I, how did I come across this information, you ask? It was because I'm in the know. And you got to be in the know. Yeah, I hear things. Things you need to know. And I hear, because I'm so in the know, I hear that App State football is playing UNC this weekend. Just yeah. I mean, it's because don't tell anyone. I'm trying to keep it a small affair, you know, just some, a couple of friends, some charcuterie, you know. It's going to be really, really quiet and intimate. Obviously, this game this weekend, if you know what I'm talking about, if you don't, whatever. If you know what I'm talking about, this is going to be maybe the biggest event in the town's history in terms of people coming into the town. I actually don't know if there's enough oxygen in Boone for the amount of people that are going to ascend into Boone and just suck up all of our air. It's going to be the doom of us all. This, this weekend, Kid Brewer Stadium is definitely a place to be. Many of you really want to be there. Some of you really fought hard, worked hard to get tickets. Some of you sent, I don't know, hundreds of messages helping other people get tickets. I don't know, that may have been you. And if that was you, then you did a good job. But I want you to imagine, imagine if the university commanded that every single student had to be there this Saturday at noon. If they said, you must be there or you're out. Maybe you want to be there, you're planning on it, and you're that's great. Or maybe that sounds good to you because for whatever reason you can't be there. But what if you don't like football? What if you don't really care? And you're happy that other people are excited about this game, but you just, you kind of want to do something else. And if that's you, then it's okay. They still love you. But also maybe your reaction if the university said you have to be here, we're commanding that you be here, 
is I don't care how exciting it is. That's oppressive for the university to tell you that there's an exclusive choice about where you can be at noon on Saturday. And I think this gives us a sense of two beliefs that are resistant to the content of the first commandment, which is that you shall have no other gods before me. This is the God of the Bible demanding exclusive worship. And there are two beliefs that there are other beliefs, but these are two that are resistant to that kind of thing. And the first belief is that, yeah, there's some people have God as the foundation of their life. The God of the Bible works for some people, but not for everybody. There's foundations or there's sources of life for other people. And the second would be that the God of the Bible, if he demands, because he demands exclusive worship of himself, then that makes him narcissistic and oppressive. Well, the first commandment and the entirety of the Ten Commandments, they're not optional the way they're conveyed to us. This is not a, maybe you should think about it, but there are other, there are other gods out there maybe that you could go after. But it's not presented to us as the voice of a tyrannical bully god. It, it, the way the Bible conveys it to us is, an, is truly an absolute com- command and an invitation. What I want you to consider tonight is that the first commandment is an invitation to liberation. The first commandment, this commandment, is an invitation to liberation, to freedom, to the good life. And what does that mean? What does it mean that the first commandment is an invitation for liberation? Well, we need to grasp a couple of central things, and the first one is, is this. That according to the Bible, there are no other gods, and we worship them. There are no other gods, and we worship them. So the commandment here, you shall have no other gods before me, you can see there in Exodus 23, it, it references these other gods. Who are they? Well, in the ancient world, this is referencing the gods of the nations. These are gods that are attached to forces of of nature, like rain and rain, agriculture. And they're often attached to things made out of wood or stone, these statues. These gods, according to the Bible, are not real. So you can look there. Psalm 115, 4 through 7 says this. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see. And it goes on from there. What it's saying is that these idols, these so-called gods, that are basically created by human hands, and they have feet and they have eyes, they are worthless. Not only do they have feet and they, they do not walk, but they don't control the wind or the rain. But consistently, the Bible conveys them to us as though or tells us that they, these false gods, these gods that are not real, they exert great power over people. Well, how is that possible? If they're not real, how do they demonstrate or exert any power over people? Well, you can look there at Psalm 115.8. that says, those who make them, as in these idols, become like them. So do all who trust in them. We become like the gods we worship. We become like them. So, for example, Baal in the ancient world was the god of agriculture. People worshipped him and believed that he could give them good stuff out of the land. He's not real. He's not real, and yet the power of stuff coming out of the land, good crop, and the power of people's desire to control the harvest 
is very much real and very much powerful. And so when people were worshiping Baal, they were gripped by and shaped by that worship. But if this command, if it, if it applies to us, then that, means it, that means that we must be like these ancient people. We must bow down to idols or these false gods. But we say, I'm not a religious person. Or, you know, even if, if I were, I'm not going down to my basement and bowing down to a shrine of my grandmother's hunting trophy. I'm not like these really ignorant ancient people. Well, we are like them because we worship. And worship is a matter of our ultimate loyalty and love. To worship is to give your souls, your innermost loyalty or devotion, and your love or your adoration to that thing. And from that thing, you look for your identity, your security, your purpose, your value. And we need those things. So to be human is to be a worshiper. And we can't stop worshiping because we can't stop being human, because we need identity and security, purpose and value. And so we look for it by worshiping, by attaching our loyalty and our love to different things. And yeah, we've gotten rid of most of the idols of wood and stone. You may not be worshiping your grandmother's hunting trophy down in your basement. But let's take, for example, romance. Romance is not a god. And yet we often treat it as though it is. And that hunger for affection, that intense need for, to love passionately and to be loved, it grips you and it shapes you because you are worshiping in that act. The other gods aren't real, but that doesn't mean that there aren't other powers that are real. I mean, the power of identity obviously is, is, is real, but also there are other spiritual powers that the Bible tells us are real. The Bible unapologetically looks at the world reality in a spiritual way and unapologetically tells us that there are spiritual powers, spiritual forces that are not God, but actively oppose God's good purpose in the world. And these, these gods, they, they may not be real, but they are very, very happy for you to attach your loyalty and your love to things that aren't real. Or things that are real but are not God. Gods that are not real. These powers are happy to trap you in a dependence on idols. To cage you. These gods aren't real. Romance is not a real god. The, the opinions of other people, that, that, that's not God, but we often treat it as though it is, and that hunger for acceptance grips us and shapes us. That They're not real gods, and yet we worship them, and so it is very destructive. Our worship of the false gods is destructive. If you worship money, you become more like what you worship because you become greedier and greedier. If you worship uh, physical appearance, you become more and more obsessed with surface-level beauty and more and more insecure. But more than anything, we, when we worship false gods, we become like them because in the way that we become emptier. We become more shallow and less of ourselves because idols, they cage us. There's an author named Alan Noble, and he, he writes of something called zoofication. Zoofication. And it's a common term for what happens in zoos when lions they just seem to anxiously pace back and forth in their cage, 
just back and forth. They, they won't stop pacing because they're in this artificial environment. It's, it's meant to look a little bit like their natural habitat, but it's fake. It's, it's not where they actually are typically meant to be. And that's not from lack of trying. The zoos will often bring in lion experts. You know, maybe one of you are a lion expert. They bring in these lion experts to, to make the artificial environment as real as possible. They, they have the, the diet of the lion scientifically engineered so that he gets every single nutrient that he needs, and yet, clearly something is off. And he paces anxiously back and forth because no matter how much they want to create this environment to, to be like the real thing, something in his instinct knows that it's not. And so he restlessly paces back and forth, back and forth. And this is what idolatry does to us. It cages us and it can only give us an artificial version of what God gives, an artificial identity and security and purpose and value. And in giving you those things, it cages you. Idols, they promise us things that we need and crave. The ancients, they worship things of wood and stone, not because they were so much more ignorant or dumb than we are, but because idolatry was normal. People just did it. It was easy. Because you just you recited the right words, and then the god of the rain would give you rain. And it was indulgent. It didn't tell you to deny your cravings for pleasure. It said you should have more of these. And it was, in the end, self-centered, selfish. Yeah, you gave some stuff to the god, but you got to stay in center stage. Idolatry, worship of gods that aren't real, it promises us the things we need and crave. And why do we go after them? Because it's normal. Because you can do this and no one will call you out on it. No one will even notice or know. And it's easy. All you have to do is, is purchase a certain amount of things or take on a certain appearance. And you're promised it to have the identity that you want. It's indulgent. Worshiping of these gods, it tells you you can have what you so crave. You don't have to deny yourself. And you get to stay at the center of control. So on one level, why wouldn't we go after it? Well, the reason we cannot go after it is because worshiping the false gods only cages us. The gods can't give us anything real. They only distort our relationship with the good things that God has made. Idolatry distorts our, our, our relationships, our posture toward other people so that we become easily bitter toward them when they don't give us the things that we demand in a relationship. They're not giving us the attention or praise that we need from them. And so it distorts our relationship. It distorts our relationship with our, our work or our schoolwork. And rather than our work becoming, uh, being this thing that we do in service to God's goal in the world, it becomes the goal. And so we pour ourselves into our work as we hunger after success and, and value. And unreal gods, they delude us into thinking, you're home. Everything is, everything is right. You have everything you need. But anxiously, we can't stop pacing. We hear noises outside of the cage. Something in us can't help but feel something is not right. When I, why am I not happy? 
even when, when things are, are looking, looking up for me, I've, I've got the things that, that I, I thought that I wanted, and yet I'm not happy, and I'm just restless. Something must be wrong with me, and me alone, because other people, they seem so happy. Or if I acknowledge that everyone around me just seems restless and kind of unhappy, maybe the best that we can do is just distract ourselves and numb ourselves. But what if, what if our hearts are restless until they find rest in the one true God? What if? If there is one God and any worship of anything else cages us, then the commandment to worship him alone is an invitation to liberation. So let's see that now. There is only one God and we must worship him. There are no other gods, and yet we worship them. But there is only one God, and so we must worship him. And to understand that and why that's the case, we have to, to ask, who is this God? Well, he's, he, the, the God of the Bible is not a God among other gods. He is the God. He is the God who made all things out of nothing. He is perfectly happy being himself, needing nothing from you. And he is the God who exclusively deserves your loyalty, your service, and your love, your adoration. He alone. And what is this God commanding? Only what's appropriate to give him. Here, this, this commandment says, you shall have no other gods before me, which can mean you shall have no other, other thing, nothing else in the place of exclusive loyalty and love. But it can, can also mean you shall have no other God before my face. Like, get that false God out of my face. And so this is an absolute command. No other gods but me and no other gods in my presence. But God is not, is not telling you you can never be devoted to a friend or devoted to some cause. He's not saying you can't enjoy the things that he's made. He is commanding exclusive soul loyalty. The whole of your life is to be only dedicated toward him. And the whole of yourself, the whole of your love can only be directed toward him. He's commanding your worship. There's a quote by Philip Ryken. Here you can read. He says, the point is that when it comes to worshiping God, it is all or nothing. All or nothing. And this is an affront to all of us. Because maybe you say, I don't want anything to do with this God. But even if you believe in this God, there's still the problem of the big and. Yes, I want to worship God and pleasure. Yes, I want to worship God and the approval of the people whose approval I so want and crave. God's command is, is absolute, but it's also an invitation out of the cage. He needs nothing from you. He has no reason to manipulate you or coerce you. Again, he is perfectly happy being himself. And so when he commands you, obligation becomes delight. Command is invitation. He commands your good. He commands your flourishing because he will not stand for any other false god caging you and making you last and trapping you in a cycle of looking for what only he can give you. A man is, is in the desert and he's been without a drink of water for two days and he's dying of thirst. His, his lips and his skin are so cracked that they're bleeding. He is 
The headache in his head is pounding like a heavy drum, louder and louder, more and more. His muscles are beginning to seize, and he is near death. But all of a sudden, he sees 50 feet away a pool of clear blue water. And he can't stop himself but running toward it. But then his, his legs get out, and he falls on the ground. He begins to crawl toward it. And as he gets 10 feet away, you can tell it's not a hallucination. As a slight wind picks up some mist off of the pool and brings it into the cracks in his skin and his lips. But right as he's about to, to make it to the edge of the pool to drink, he hears a voice that says, drink this water and only this water. And it bothers him because as thirsty as he is, as close as he is to death, he believes two things. One, there are other sources of water. And two, it is oppressive to demand that other people drink. It's my thirst, and you can't tell me what to do with it. And so he cries out to whatever voice is out there and says, can't, isn't there another source of water? Isn't there another pool? And the voice doesn't answer. It only says again, drink this water and only this water. And that just infuriates the man. And he says, how dare you? I refuse to drink. And so he stays at the edge of the pool, and he stays thirsty. Yes, God is commanding, but his command is this, be liberated. His command to thirsty people is drink from the only source of living water. It's that kind of command. That if we say the God of the Bible may be a foundation for your life, but there's other foundations for life. There's other sources of true identity and all the rest. But that would only be true if there are other gods. It would only be true if there were other gods. But if there is only one God and it's this God, then saying there are other sources of life is like saying to the man by the, the pool, you can drink from whatever pool you want to while he drinks sand. But if we say this is so oppressive, God is showing how narcissistic he is, that is only true if he's needy. But he's not needy. He has no reason to manipulate you. And the only thing he wants to oppress or destroy are the false gods that are holding you down. The first commandment is an invitation to liberation. Because if the true God is your God, then you don't need any other gods. You don't need them. Romance, success, power, appearance, approval, none of it has any hold over you. None of it tells you who you are, what your purpose is, or where you're going, where you need to go. But if your soul is loyal to him and him alone is as God, then you get everything back. Everything he's made as a gift. You can enjoy relationships and work and all things in proportion because you don't need them to be your God. You don't need other people to be your God. God is your God. And if your soul is loyal to him and loves him alone as God, then you're home. You're finally in, in the place where you're meant to be. You're operating the way you're meant to design and then alone. So how do we respond? If we want to respond to this in obedience, what, what do we do? The first thing we need to do is find the idols. How would I even know what the false gods are? So let's walk through a couple of questions by a pastor named Kevin DeYoung. He asked these questions. What do you adore? What do you truly delight in? What do you give praise to? That is your God. What do you trust? What do you find your confidence in? If it's taken away, what rocks you and shakes you? That is your God. Where do you find purpose? What drives you? What gets you up in the morning and keeps you going? There is your God. And whom do you thank? 
When things go well for you, do you exclusively and primarily thank yourself and pat yourself on the back? You've become your own God. We respond by first asking that question, but then we kill the and. Kill the and. No other gods but God. But we have to recognize this is, this is a command that's for God's people. This is a command for you when you have entrusted yourself, your soul to God. And then, even then, it is his work in your life that you work with, you participate in. So to kill the and, it means looking at the part of your life that you want to hold on to. You don't want to, to give away for God to, to do his work with. Whatever that place is, you say, God, do not touch. That is the place, again and again, we must submit to him and trust to him and say, God, would you detach this thing from the loyalty and love of my soul? And simultaneously, it's not just kill it. It's also to bring to life to encourage loyalty and love for God. The only thing that can expel an idol is a love that's even greater than the idol. That's the only thing that can get rid of an idol is a love that is bigger. But the, the answer for us is, I just need to like feel, I just need to like kind of manufacture some kind of feeling of loyalty and love for God. Because that makes it sound like God, you know, he demands this, but he doesn't really deserve it. And so it's really up to me to manufacture it. It's up for, for me to feel a certain way. No, if you're in my, if, if our loyalty and our love is not given to God exclusively, it's because we're not seeing God clearly yet. Not clearly enough yet. I don't know if, if you know this about birth, and I don't want to exaggerate, but it's dramatic. I don't want to overstate, but birth is dramatic. Last summer, my wife gave birth to our, our daughter, Faye. And when the day came, after nine months, we went to the OR for the scheduled delivery. And there in the room, things happened. There were noises and sights, and then dramatically, very dramatically, Seemingly out of nowhere, our daughter, Faye, appeared. And when I saw her there, when I saw her there in front of me, the doctors didn't need to say, look, it's your daughter. No, Mr. Heron, that is a heat lamp. That's not your daughter. This is your daughter right here. It was so dramatic, and I still had an, enough of, of myself to, to see clearly. How could I miss it? And when I saw her, I was... Seeing this, this person that my heart had longed for for nine long months. No doctor needed to tell me, look, this alone is your daughter. There's no, the heat lamp is not your daughter. No, I knew. Because I am devoted to one daughter, and I love one daughter, and it's Faye. When Jesus came into the world, he came in the most dramatic way. And if you knew what to look for, you wouldn't miss it. He came in the most dramatic display of the unique character, the unique heart of God. He came as the God who did not leave his people to a cage of their own making, but he endured suffering and death so that they would be liberated. People who had given their loyalty and their love to everything else. He gave them liberation at the greatest cost to himself. If we see Jesus, if we see him by believing in him and his love, we are seeing God himself. And we're seeing right through the heart of God, the unique heart of God. How could you miss it? If you see him, how could you worship? How could you be loyal to? How could you love 
any other God but this God. Because there are no other gods before him. Let me pray. Father, thank you for this command because it is an invitation to liberation. So would we entrust ourselves to you as the God who is? Would we entrust ourselves to you as the God who breaks down idols to set us free? And we ask this in your name. Amen.